Thank you, worship team. Man, it's just so good to, ah, just to lock voices with our church family and to sing things that are true, to declare the excellencies of our God vertically, but also horizontally because of this thing we hold to, that we cling to, that we proclaim the gospel, the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. All of humankind for thousands and thousands of years has wondered how can a person, assuming there is the divine, how can a person look at God and God look at that person and both of them say, in sincerity and in truth, we good. We good. Nothing between us. The, the, the margin has been bridged. That's the gospel. And in view of that, it should, it must, it does change everything. Now, we use that definition down here at Bethel Downtown all the time. And my name's Eric Barton, by the way, and I get to pastor down here at Bethel Downtown. And I love that definition. We've been in the book of Colossians all this summer because it is one of those little epistles from the Apostle Paul that feeds into, that supplies the necessary ingredients and the casserole that is our gospel definition. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them to Colossians chapter 4. At long last, we're going to conclude our study in the book of Colossians. I say this every time we finish a sermon series, quoting the aviation industry's favorite adage, the takeoff is optional, the landing is not. And so here we are at the final chapter in the final section of the book of Colossians. Before we talk about the book of Colossians, I want to just give you a little bit of an on-ramp. You might say a runway to point to. We've said all summer long that the theme, theologically, Christologically, the theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ. Paul uses a technical term, the proteo Christu. He is preeminent, he is primary, he is principal. He is not accessory, he is not additive, he is not add-on. Now that can and must change everything. So there's about a thousand things I could draw out from our study this summer together in the book of Colossians, but I want to draw attention to just really sort of one high point in each chapter. In chapter one, we do have this thing, the supreme question. Is Jesus supreme, or is he just really kind of awesome, like one of the more mighty angels, or a, a sort of a, a demiurge that came back at an Gnostic worldview that would just kind of spurt it out by Jehovah God way back then? Or is he actually God who created everything, the only uncreated one, who is not just divine, not just deity, but he's also human, and not just human. He's actually the only complete and perfect and true fully baked human. He's our aspiration, this Jesus. And so you have to begin the process of crucifying the intellect to align your heart, your mind, your feeling, your relationships around anything else. That's just the middle of chapter one. And by the time you finish chapter one, you're like, go King Jesus, I'm in on that deal. Where are we going? And then you read chapter two and what this King Jesus did. Where we come into this life at conception, marked for death, enemies of God, by nature God haters, rebels and brigands, 
deserving to be stripped of all of our perceived strengths and gifts and talents. What you read in chapter 2 is that Jesus, the creator, the king, the preeminent supreme one, he was stripped of his flesh. He became the very thing that you and I deserve, willingly, willfully. Yes, for the glory of the Father, but also because of his love for us. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And then Paul does what Paul does. And in chapter three, he gets very, very practical and applicational. And he rubs this in very, very pertinently and personally. He says, I want you to think about this now. If you are, in fact, a member of the church of Jesus Christ, if you are a slave of King Jesus, are you spending more time developing and cultivating your character, your integrity, your nobility, or are you simply writing your gifts and your talents and your skills and your abilities? We're going to have a show of hands. and No, we're not, actually, because it would be utterly humiliating to all of us because we do have a tendency to drift to autopilot and we simply just go with our skills, our strengths, our abilities, our talents. And Paul's saying, no, you're from the future. King Jesus has dragged the border and the boundary of the future back into the present and he pinned it in the past with the cross. And so we are the preview of coming attractions. Develop, enable, Ennoble your character, your nobility, your dignity. In chapter four, we get all these things of, listen, it is your personal participation in the preeminence of Christ. Live like it's true. Look at the world like it's true. Love in the world like it's true. Be willing to live your life for the sake of others as opposed to the upside down where everybody else by default lives your lives for me. Paul says, oh no, Jesus is supreme, not you. And because of that, you get to actually experience this unfettered joy that is, the Greek term, the pleroma, the fulfillment, the fullness. Every philosopher, every pursuer of wisdom in the ancient Greco-Roman world was trying to pursue the fullness, the pleroma. Paul says, oh, I got that. It's a dude, and I know him. It's Jesus, and he was alive. And then, and then... And then we killed him, and we shamed him, and we hanged him on a tree. But you know what? God did a switcheroo. God applied all of my anger, all of my apathy, all of my adulterous notions, all of my alcohol abuse, all of my every other sin that starts with A, and he piled it on Jesus. And then he raised Jesus, and he's alive and he's coming again. He is the supreme one. And so in view of all that, what do we do with this book of Colossians? Where we've said very practically, it is about confronting and correcting conflict with the kingship of Christ. All these different errors and problems that arise in the church for the last 2,000 years typically are local, but that truth of the kingship of Christ is universal. So no matter what's going on regionally, in space and time, we can apply the kingship of Christ and go, you know, I don't know about all that, but we serve a death-proof king, and here's how he would feel about it. And usually the meeting's adjourned, and that's pretty cool. All of which at long last brings us to Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. I'm going to read straight through this. Because it's a bit of a roll call. I want to remind you that Paul is 
sitting in Rome, as he writes this, during his first Roman imprisonment. He's in prison in Rome at least twice that we know of. Does not survive the second Roman imprisonment. This one, he has been arrested in Jerusalem. He's been carted off and stood trial several times. A couple of years go by on Caesarea by the sea on the coast there of the Mediterranean in Israel. Finally, he's sailed over to Rome where there's a shipwreck and all kinds of bad things happen. It takes forever. But there he is in Rome under his own house arrest at his own expense. And he writes four letters, Ephesians, he writes Philippians, he writes Colossians, and he writes Philemon. Philemon is the smaller of those letters, and it also goes to the town of Colossae. So he's writing to some people, to a place that he's never been, and people that he's never met, at the request of a man named Epaphras. Epaphras was the pastor in Colossae, planted that church, probably planted the churches of Hierapolis and Laodicea, these three other little towns that were within 12 miles of one another. It forms a little triangle in the Lycus River Valley. Epaphras was probably converted by Paul while Paul was in Ephesus for three plus years. And he goes and he plants this church in Colossae. And Paul writes them about fruit trees and you can be a fruit tree. And they were surrounded by fruit trees in the real. It's such a beautiful image. But then Epaphras begins to experience some errant teachings coming in. And so he goes back to Rome. It's not an easy journey. He says, Paul, I got this problem, these people. And I don't know how big this church is, but they're meeting in Philemon's house. There's probably 30, 40 people max in this fledgling church. So Paul says, I got this. I'm going to write to you, for you, to your church back in Colossae. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. He writes this, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. And then Paul describes him three ways. And I got to just tell you, this gets all over me. And if it doesn't you, then you're not remembering Saul of Tarsus, who is murdering Christians who had papers to go to Damascus to bring them back, bound hand and foot, to deliver them over to be stoned. you got to think about Saul of Tarsus converted in Acts chapter 9, spends this time with Jesus, and he's thinking, I'm the best, I'm the brightest, Jesus picked me, now I get it, now I'm good to go. And then Jesus puts him in cold storage. And for about 14 years, he sits in Cilicia, making tents for his daddy, after his conversion. And you got to be thinking, well, this is the greatest apostle ever to the Gentiles. We've got to cut him loose. No, he just sits there in relative hiddenness and obscurity for 14 years until finally, Acts 11, Barnabas comes and gets him, drags him to Jerusalem and says, Paul, it's go time. We need you to plant these churches. And Paul's like, oh, now they're going to see I'm the most educated one. No, he has to fall in line and defer to all these fishermen, all these knuckle-dragging dudes. And he loves it. And he falls in love with them. He calls them brother. And he locks arms. And then he begins to meet Gentiles along the way. These Gentiles that he would not be caught dead with, literally. But here he sits in Rome. And he commends Tychicus with three descriptions. And I want to remind you, this letter is being dictated aloud. Paul, he had about 24,000 vision. Okay, He couldn't see this. And so he has all of his letters dictated, maybe even by Tychicus, who is hearing this and writing this down, or at least sitting in there and hearing this. It's such a good leadership principle. You praise in public. You rebuke in discretion. But Tychicus is hearing this, wondering, am I good enough? Should I really be a part of this deal? Listen to what Paul calls him. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother. 
we could stop right there and spend the rest of our morning together. We're not. But those are two quick little things. He is beloved. I got paid to it. That means Tychicus's primary identity is not Gentile. It is not Roman. It is that he is loved of God. And because of that, he's a brother, a sibling. We share the same family. Now, I confess, when I look at other Christians, my default tendency is not to look at them and go, loved of God. Like, that person is on God's refrigerator, and every time he walks by, he squeaks. Beloved. Tychicus is a beloved brother. It means God loves him, and I love him. I want Tychicus's good above my own. That's how he's described out loud. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister. This word minister is diakonos. It's where we get our word for deacon. He kicks up the dust as he goes about doing the ministries. The ministries are simply the avenues, the streets, the paths of how we accomplish the purpose of the church. And Tychicus is faithful. He does it. All the time. He never gets weary. He just keeps doing it. He's a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister and a sundolas, a fellow servant. He's a co-captive of King Jesus, you might say. I'm, in, I'm the one that's been arrested, but he is a co-captive of King Jesus with me. Imagine the, the, the heart that is swelling in Tychicus as the apostle Paul says, I see what you're doing. I affirm and I appreciate Tychicus. Keep at it. This is what we are all about. He's a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. Now, Tychicus is kind of the man. We learn about him in Ephesians. He gets sent at some point to the island of Crete to assist Titus. He um, probably wrote this letter uh, to the Colossians. He probably wrote or penned this letter to the Ephesians as well. Very highly thought of, traveled with Paul a great deal. And he's a Gentile. That's amazing. And Paul relied on this guy. It has been said, rightly so, the greatest of all abilities is dependability. At least in Christian service and ministry. And Tychicus is characterized by his dependability. A beloved brother, a faithful minister, He's also a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. That's interesting to me. Paul wants them to be acutely aware of what's going on in Rome and why. I want you to know why I'm here. Now, we'll circle back on that at the very end of this passage, but Paul wants them to understand with clarity and with specificity why he is there and what he's experiencing and what's going on so that you may know why or how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. They'd probably gotten word. Hey, the apostle, the apostle, Saul of Tarsus. Now, Paul, the apostle, he's in chains. He's in Rome. Is this whole thing going to implode? Is it going to go face down? Or is it over? Have we been believing a myth? Paul says, I want to encourage you. And so he sends somebody to do it. Well, it starts us off. There are some people in the church who what they care about most is faith. They care, they care about doctrine. They care about the content of our belief, usually characterized by a generation or two. And then there are other groups of people in the church, usually characterized by a different generation or two, that are all concerned about community 
And it's the buzzword in Christendom. Community, community. We gotta have one another. We gotta have one another. And here's the great news. Your Bible loves both. So what we're seeing Paul sending Tychicus to accomplish is our big idea for the morning. And it goes like this, very simply. There's no verb, so get over yourselves. Faith through fellowship. Faith through fellowship. It's both and. Our faith is to grow. Our faith is to glow. But the avenue and the sandbox in which that happens is through fellowship. Not just, not just friendship, as cool as that is. This is fellowship. This comes from Greek word. It's koinonia. It means the thing we have in common. Our coinage is the thing we all agree to, the value. That is the thing that we have in common. So when we have that in common, the supremacy of Christ, that is our commonality, our coinage. Our faith grows and it glows. So Paul mentions this guy, Tychicus. I've sent him to you, verse 8, for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts and with him Onesimus. Now Onesimus might be slightly more known to you. There's the subject of the entire letter of Philemon. Onesimus was a runaway slave. But remember, we're not talking a runaway slave as in the 19th century in North America. At least one-third of the population of the Roman Empire was in some level of slavery or indentured servitude. But at some point, for whatever reason, Onesimus says, I'm out on this deal, and he runs away, and apparently he encounters Paul in prison. It just so happens you've run away (laughs) to the Apostle Paul's prison apartment. Now, that's kind of cool, and he's converted. And now his name, Onesimus, means useful. Paul says here in verse 9, and with Tychicus, I'm sending Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. And we'll get a whole lot more about that in the book of Philemon. He was a runaway. Paul doesn't define him by his past errors. He defines him by his dignity and his nobility now. That's really good. Hey, church, we ought to try that with one another. That's marvelous. He is faithful and he's a beloved brother, just like Tychicus, beloved of God, beloved by me, who is one of you. He's a Colossian. He's from there. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. I want you to know what's happening. I want you to understand what's happening, church. You're experiencing and encountering resistance because of course you are, because this is real If there's absolutely no resistance, then we've probably got a bigger, deeper, more foundational problem. Well, he continues on. Aristarchus. Now, I got to tell you, Aristarchus, one of my absolute heroes in the faith. You don't get a whole lot of talk about Aristarchus in sermons and Sunday school lessons, and that's too bad, because Aristarchus is, and I quote, the man. Aristarchus is from Thessalonica in Macedonia. Aristarchus is a Jew. Aristarchus gets in harm's way in Acts 19 and risks his life when 25,000 people rush Paul to tear him limb from limb. Aristarchus jumps in there and says, no, 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 start here. This is Aristarchus. A convert, probably as Paul goes through Philippi and or Thessalonica, Aristarchus is a Jew who is converted, who travels with Paul nonstop. He travels with Paul all the way back to Jerusalem after the second missionary journey, and then he travels with Paul all the way to Rome for this imprisonment, which means Aristarchus willingly gets on the boat. That was a bad voyage. 
They are shipwrecked, lost at sea. They all think they're going to die, and Aristarchus is right out there with them. He is a fellow prisoner. He willfully, volitionally subjects himself to be confined with and for Paul, to minister for and to Paul. I like this guy, Aristarchus. He's amazing. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, yeah, that's right, that Mark. And I love how Paul describes him here because Mark caused some problems. He's called John Mark. You might know that Mark also wrote the gospel of Mark on Paul's first missionary journey. Well, he and Mark and Barnabas set off and right there in the middle of Galatia, Mark says, you know what? I'm out on this deal. I'm, I'm gone. I don't like how this is going. We don't know what that meant. He didn't, maybe didn't like the fact that they were dealing with Gentiles. Maybe didn't like that Paul was having to take leadership and that Barnabas was having to take a backseat because Barnabas and Mark were cousins. Who knows? Mark goes back. Paul doesn't like it very much. So by the time it's time to start the second missionary journey, Barnabas says, let me grab Mark. Let's go. Paul says, yeah, I don't think so. Not this time. I'm taking Silas. Paul and Barnabas get in a big fight. They split up. They go their separate ways. But later, we find out that Peter took a special, this is an East Texas term, he took a special shine to Mark and loved him and restored him, calls him his son. Later in 2 Timothy, Paul will say, bring me Mark, for he is useful. I love that guy. Mark is fully restored. Mark's the guy whose parents probably had the house with the upper room where the upper room discourse and the last Passover took place. It's Mark and his gospel who probably runs away naked in the Garden of Gethsemane. How'd you like to have that on your business card? Naked garden streaker. It's Mark that in about A.D. 66 was dragged to pieces by horses in Alexandria, Egypt for preaching the gospel. This guy finishes well. So you got Aristarchus, You've got Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. There's a bit of a tender compassion there. He's a little fragile still. He needs a little extra side hug. Don't let him go. Side hug a little longer and not let him go. Mark still needs some loving, all right? He needs some encouragement and some compassion. Verse 11, and Jesus, Jesus, well, hold on. It's a very common name, Yeshua, Jesus, who is called Justice. Most everyone had a Hebrew name and a Roman name so that there would not be confusion. So they probably called this guy Jesus Justice. Justice means righteous. So his, his Roman name was Righteous. Sheesh, imagine the pressure of that name. Jesus, who is called Justice. That's all we know about this guy, but he's there in Rome with Paul. Listen to this. These are the only men of the circumcision among the fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Of all the ones that are with Paul, these are the only three Jews who have been converted who are still sticking with Paul and ministering to him and for him. And he says, they are to me a comfort. But he uses a technical word. It's used nowhere else in the New Testament. They are a huge relief for me. Now, we don't really understand why these three guys represented such a relief of the tensions and the pains and the fears and the uncertainties and the doubts that the Apostle Paul undoubtedly carried around. Had he missed it? Was he wrong? Were, were, there, were there any Jews? Were there any Jews who would receive Messiah? There was three, and it was real. And it was a huge relief. And a reminder. When there are people in our sphere of influence, in our hearts, in our heads, that we think, yeah, the gospel will never reach that person, 
nobody is beyond the gospel. Even in a Thessalonican Macedonian Jew named Aristarchus, even Mark who deserted Paul, even this guy Justus whose name was righteous, these Jewish men became believers and they followed Paul right through to the very end. The gospel is always our hope. Then verses 12 and 13. The most convicting dude to pastors in probably all of your Bible. So this is always fun to get up and preach about super pastor when you have a mirror. And I, yeah, really got to spend some extra time in reflection and prayer this week, thanks to Epaphras, or who Tom Ramey calls Pappy, rightly so. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you? He's a Colossian. Epaphras is one of you. I want you to remember, Epaphras is hearing this out loud as this letter is being dictated. See how Paul is building, blessing, bolstering the church. Faith through fellowship. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave of King Jesus, willingly, joyfully. Listen to how this guy goes about his day. He greets you. He's always struggling on your behalf. Now, I'm always struggling, but not in the same way. I drive the struggle bus, beep, beep, just because I'm not really good at anything. That's not what this is talking about. This is, Epaphras is always agonizing. The word agonizing comes from the Greek word for the wrestling rink, the agon. He's always agonizing. He's grappling and he's struggling and he's on his face and he's praying and he's praying and he's weeping and he's gnashing his teeth in prayer for you which is not how I usually spend my Sunday afternoons or Mondays or Tuesdays. I could continue. But I will tell you, convicted about that this week, I redoubled my efforts and thought about it. And so I just would set aside some time and I would pray for all of you as your faces would come by and as your situations would come across my mind. And oh my gosh, it's been like the most joyous week ever. Y'all got some problems, I don't mind telling you. But it's been amazing it's just been so humbling and so enriching to just like agonize and pray and like, God, you got to do this thing because I don't have a better idea, but you probably do, but I don't. If you don't intervene, this person, they're going to go through hell. They're, you got to do something and just, ah, and then wake up and be like, I'm exhausted and I could climb a smooth wall right now. It's been a great thing. So this is Epaphras. He always struggles on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand. This is what Epaphras, this pastor, is praying for his people. And this is why this is one of the most important little epistles in pastoral ministry. Because what do you pray for your people? That they'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise? Insufficient, inadequate, not biblical. Now listen to what Epaphras prays for his people. That they may stand, not charge the gates of heck with a water pistol, no, 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 no. They would stand mature, that is teleos, complete, fully baked, fully orbed, rightly uh, matured, and fully assured in all the will of God. Fully assured is fulfillment, that they would have the pleroma, that they would have what all these false philosophers and Stoics and Epicureans and everybody else is trying to deposit through their Gnosticism. No, Epaphras would pray, don't let them get picked off, that they would have the fullness, that they would stand mature, because Epaphras knows what every other pastor knows, that one day we will stand and we will give an account of the bride. Hmm. We will stand in front of Jesus, 
whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose body still bear the marks of his sacrifice, and we will say, this is Bethel. Here they are. Here they are. Here they are. And I can't wait. And apparently neither could Epaphras. And there in front of Saul of Tarsus, no, Paul the apostle, Epaphras would just wrestle and pray and agonize for this little church back in Colossae. I love that. Always love the book of Colossians for that. It's always been a great model. Verse 13, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. He has strained and pained for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis, this little triangle of cities 12 miles apart in the Lycus River Valley. He regionally is concerned for all of these people, not just that one little pocket there in Colossae. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Luke is the man. He's a Gentile. The only other Gentile, the only, the only Gentile, other than maybe Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, he's the only Gentile that writes any scripture. And he writes more words in your New Testament than any other author, including Paul. He writes the book of Luke. He writes volume 2, the book of Acts. He's a physician. We encounter Luke in the city of Troas in Acts chapter 16, and he travels with Paul for the rest of that missionary journey, goes back with Paul. He also takes the sea voyage in Acts 27 and goes all the way, gets shipwrecked, goes with Paul, ministers to him in Rome during his first arrest, and he's even with Paul during his second arrest in Rome. And Paul tells us that he's with Paul all the way to the end of his life. Church tradition holds that Luke was nailed to an olive tree in Greece by a group of pagan priests. Finished strong all the way to the end, this Gentile named Luke. As does Demas. Moving on. Ooh, that's not so good. This guy Demas gets mentioned a few times. He gets mentioned in the book of Philemon. He's a good fellow laborer, good guy. He gets mentioned here with no descriptions at all. And then he gets mentioned in 2 Timothy. Demas, who loved the world, deserted me. He didn't finish the race. Something happened and he lost his purpose and he lost his belief in the supremacy of Christ and he departed. Can that happen? Absolutely. And so we have to have the church. Faith through fellowship and Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha. And the church in her house. Now, some of your translations might say Nymphos. It's possible that Nymphos was a man. Most manuscripts would agree that this is Nympha, probably a female. Doesn't matter that much. But apparently in Laodicea, Paul had never been there either, didn't know them. There's a church meeting in her house. Just like in Colossae, the church was almost certainly meeting in Philemon's house. Paul says, give my greetings to her and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Ah, so Paul apparently wrote them a letter as well. Or did he? We don't know. We don't have it. Many, many scholars believe that that's probably the letter to the Ephesians that made it to Laodicea that was then supposed to come over to Colossae and Colossae's letter was supposed to go to Laodicea and Hierapolis and then over to Ephesus. Maybe. The point is, a lot of liberal scholars will say that these letters were never intended to be scripture that they're just personal communications between a guy and some people. Incorrect. 
Paul wants them read aloud, not just passed around and make copies of them. No, no. He wants them read aloud in the churches because he's doing a great grand high Christology that affords a great grand ecclesiology, faith through fellowship. He wants these letters read aloud, which is one of the reasons we have this high value of reading God's word aloud in our gathered spaces together. Verse 17. And say to Archippus, I want to remind you that this letter is being read aloud in the church. And say to Archippus, who suddenly begins to squirm in his chair, Archippus was the son of Philemon and Aphia. Philemon was the wealthier man in Colossae in whom uh, the, the church was meeting. And apparently during Epaphras' absence, Archippus had been tasked to pastor in the interim while Epaphras is gone. And so Paul says, oh, and uh, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. A little bit delicate to hear in the ESV. The idea is, hey, Archippus, you're running out of steam. Keep doing what you were called to do. And he reminds him of the why, not just the what. See, that's good leadership, Paul. He reminds him of the why, not just the what. The ministry that you have received in the Lord, you're doing this for Jesus. We say this all the time. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. I know, Archippus, you're probably feeling incapable. That's okay. That's just because you are. You're a pastor. That's what, that's what goes with the territory. And you're getting bombarded by all these other voices, all these errant teachers. It's okay. Keep doing what you're doing, giving the gospel, giving the gospel, because it's the only hope. Because Jesus is worth it. Well, what if they ridicule? What if they don't hear it? What if they don't receive it? Not your problem. You give the gospel with clarity because Jesus is worth it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is where Paul takes the pen. And he goes, give me that. And he gets the paper and he now starts to write it. And I write this greeting, this final sentence. I'm going to write in my own hand so that you know this is authentic. This is Pauline. This is actually from me. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And the idea is, I write this greeting in my own hand. Paul! Because he had drippy, goopy eyes. It was disgusting. But on that last little bit, he writes the greeting himself. His last request, remember my chains. And then his trademark sign-off, grace be with you. Why remember my chains? Not... You guys rally up the troops. Go get Big Billy in Laodicea. Go get Happy Helen in Hierapolis. Y'all saddle up and come get me. No, that's what I would have said. Okay? No, he doesn't say that. Not, hey, could y'all send like a switch with some cool new games? I'm kind of bored. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, you know, when, when God closes a door, he opens a window. No, he, he, he doesn't say that either. Because sometimes God just seals up the house, all right? <laughs> he says, remember my chains. You guys, it's happening. Don't you get it? He's already told him. I am in prison because Jewish Messiah loves Gentiles. That's the mystery of the Old Testament. The mystery of King Jesus that the New Testament is trying to trumpet blast. The mystery of the New Testament saying, don't you see? Jewish Messiah has come. But the crazy shocker is he totally, totally loves Philistines. You didn't see that coming. He's not here to wipe them out. He's here to wipe them off and to love them. 
the, the Jewish Messiah who was stripped and beaten by his own people, crucified by the Roman Empire. He loves French people. I know. I know if it wasn't true, you wouldn't believe it. That's the mystery, and I am in chains. This world reviles that message, and so remember, I am in chains because Jewish Messiah has come. He lived. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended, and he will come again. Therefore, live accordingly. Faith, little church, then as now, through fellowship. So let me very quickly, if I can, try to apply this concluding text in the book of Colossians Three quick implications from this final passage together. Number one goes like this. None of these will be shocking. I hope they're all pretty self-evident based on what I've already said. Number one goes like this. We're all in this together. There's a little me that thinks about what Paul must have experienced after his conversion, with experiencing all of these things. And then as he travels about, he keeps getting like accessorized and saddled with all these people. And they're the worst. Have you seen them? Have you been around people? Oh my gosh. And you know, Saul of Tarsus, who was just like the most pristine and clean, suddenly he's eating like Totino's pizza rolls, this guy. Like, oh, that's not even completely real bacon. And he's having to eat it. Ah. But we're all in this together. And the apostle Paul learned to say, hey, these people, they're not in the way. They are the way. Paul, the persecutor and the enemy of the church, falls right in line with these other leaders, and more importantly, he recognizes that he has to be and gets to be with them. Nobody's ever called to do the Christian life alone, not ever once. I hear this all the time. Well, my relationship with Jesus is very personal. And I say, great. And they say, and private. I say, wrong. You don't get to do that. You're not the death-proof king in that equation. Your relationship with Jesus is to be personal, certainly, and never private, always public. You only really see Paul by himself maybe one time, and that's in Athens in Acts 17, and he doesn't like it, and he doesn't do very well, and he's despondent. He needs companionship, and so he always seeks it out. He's always eager to be traveling back with his friends in a way. Paul's companions, these people, these ministers, what he was doing ministry with, were the great grand demonstration of the mystery of King Jesus that he always wrote about. Jews and Gentiles were now to be found in Christ together. It's the best news ever. Second point, just to summarize. The kingship of Christ looks like Christian community. I wonder what does the kingdom of God look like? What is it? Well, it looks like Christian community. This is where a high Christology and ecclesiology really collide, and they should. Since Jewish Messiah came into history and redeemed believing mankind to God and even to one another, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave and free, all that stuff, that should be reflected and projected in how we interact now in this life. And since this Jewish Messiah will return again one day in the future. That impacts how we are to live in this life here in the present. See, the Christian life must be so much more than merely trying to not screw up too badly before you die so that you can finally just make it to heaven. That's, that's, that's not faith. That's not life. That's not power. 
It's not why we've been saved. We've been saved to do the good work that God prepared in advance for us to do. I know this is redundant. That good work is way more than merely doing good deeds. It is the work of righteousness. Like justice, Jesus. The work of righteousness means looking for opportunities to disadvantage myself for the sake of the others. Not just helping someone across the street. Not just paying it forward in Starbucks. Good for you, yay. No, no, no. The good work. The scripture talks about way back in Genesis 2. It is gardening, taking the resources that God gives us and we rearrange them for the blessing, the bounty, the building, the bolstering of those around us. I'm willing to suffer disadvantage for your sake. That's why we've been saved. What better place than in the church to do that? Faith through fellowship. Yes, it looks like a lot of you have had a meal together over the dinner table and hearing one another's stories and getting included and praying for one another's struggles and pains and also your hopes and your dreams. That's been beautiful. That's what the supremacy of Christ looks like and tastes like and smells like in our midst. Paul shows us what it looks like when future people gather in the present because of what God did in the past in Christ and that we will see him again when he returns. This is what it's going to be like just without so much of the opposition, and that's very good news. Choose to see the people around you right now as those people that our good God and his sovereignty has placed around you for such a time as this. What a grace. Not the nuisance that you sometimes perceive them to be. Thirdly, goes like this, and again, this is, no, this is nothing novel. This is a repeat because it's true. It takes a church to raise a Christian. I hope you see the recurring theme here. It takes a church to raise a Christian. The people mentioned in this letter's conclusion are all somewhat representative of all of us at any given time of our lives. Did you see the different categories of people that were mentioned in there? It's very subtle, but now let me show it to you explicitly. There were some friends that would stay. We have friends that will stray, and we have friends that will pray. And I've been all of those at different times in my life. I've strayed, I've stayed, and I've prayed. We are all called, we all have the opportunity to be those friends that stay and be those friends that pray. When we have strayed, there's grace for that because the church is the place where the grace of God is supposed to be most appreciated and therefore most demonstrated, just like John Mark was restored and loved. Paul showed these Colossians and then by extension the people of Rome and Ephesus and Laodicea and Hierapolis and ultimately us. We've never been called to be saved, and then go this deal alone. Somebody needs us in this fellowship, and we need someone in this fellowship. So let me just tell you, we have been planning and praying and praying and praying a lot about how to increase our, ch- our church's impact of raising up Christians. So I hope you'll be listening for some of those announcements and plans in the coming next few weeks. We believe that God is stirring in the hearts and minds of different people to invest time and energy in areas like children's ministry, in student ministry, adult groups. And this is how we get life on life. Tyler Sullins always used to say, when I say faith through fellowship, he would say, lives transform not in rows, but in circles. And I love that. And so we're going to continue to try to provide opportunity, sometimes uphill, into the wind, and against the grain, but where people can have smaller contexts of togetherness. Children, certainly in our student ministry, and even groups as well. Faith through fellowship. Now look, in conclusion, clearly King Jesus could have ascended to the right hand of the Father and left any number of strategies or structures in place to represent his kingdom 
and his personal absence. But, and this is amazing to me, what Jesus chose to do in his sovereignty and in his wisdom and in his goodness was to leave a bunch of disparate people that might not have anything else to do with one another to proclaim the gospel together. He also leaves the Spirit to indwell every believer, his word accessible by every believer so that the world might actually see what King Jesus is like. That's who we are, the new covenant community of the Spirit, and that's what we're doing. And by the way, there's nothing better. Jesus is supreme, and he's worth it. So we're going to continue to invite you to give your life away. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this little letter from the Apostle Paul to the Colossians by way of inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And thank you that for 2,000 years it has been encouraging the church and the leaders of the church. And so, Father, I pray this morning if there's anyone on any of our floors here or listening remotely that needs prayer, they would reach out via email or text or phone or in person and let us know. We can be agonizing for them. If there's someone, Father, and hearing these words that does not know your son Jesus, but simply just doesn't want to die and spend eternity alone, would you give them courage to ask someone they know and love and trust about the gospel that you have offered and exchange your righteousness for their sin? And though it's not fair, that's the kind of God you are. For the rest of us, Father, would you encourage us with these words that we are to pursue faith through fellowship. May we not orbit away and fly off into the deep, inky black of space. But may we press in tighter and closer. Because, Lord Jesus, it's what you want, and you're worth that. So we pray all these things in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.